Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter number 14. Judges chapter number 14. And we're going to read most of this chapter. We're going to uh, leave out the last verse, not because it's not important, but because it provides as a segue into another chapter that the Lord may have us preach on next week. But we're going to begin reading in verse number 1, Judges chapter number 14, verse number 1. The Word of God says that Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all my people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord, that he sought an occasion against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath. And behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid. And he had nothing in his hand, but he told not his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And after a time, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother. And he gave them, and they did eat, but he told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So his father went down unto the woman, and Samson made there a feast, for so used the young men to do. And it came to pass, when they saw him, that they brought thirty companions to be with him. Samson said unto them, I will now put forth a riddle unto you, if ye can certainly declare it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty sheets and thirty changes of garments." But if you cannot declare it me, then shall you give me thirty sheets and thirty change of garments. And they said unto him, Put forth thy riddle, that we may hear it. And he said unto them, Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days expound the riddle. It came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, Entice thy husband, that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee in thy father's house with fire, have ye called us to take that we have? Is it not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost but hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people and hast not told it me. And he said unto her, Behold, I have not told it my father nor my mother, and shall I tell it thee? She wept before him the seven days while their feast lasted. And it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her because she lay sore upon him. And she told the riddle to the children of her people. The men of the city said unto him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said unto them, If ye had not plowed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and slew thirty men of them, and took their spoil and gave change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kindled, and he went up to his father's house. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing it is to be here. Thank you for your people. Thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your house, for a meeting place where we can gather together. And Lord, I, I know it may just be uh, bricks and, and drywall and studs, but Lord, I'm thankful for it this morning that we have a place we can gather and see one another and worship together. 
Lord, I pray that the sweet Holy Spirit would have liberty this morning to work in the hearts of each and every person that is here. Uh, Lord, I hope all of us have come with the right reason, motive, purpose, and spirit. But Lord, I know regardless of how we've come, you've also showed up. You've also come to meet with us. And I pray, Lord, that the Holy Ghost would not be hindered or hampered in any way, but that he would have liberty to work in the hearts of each and every person here today, effectuating your will, Father, and bringing about glory unto you. Lord, we ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to notice the riddle that Samson puts forth in verse number 14. The Bible says that he said unto them, Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. The Lord will help us for a moment this morning. I want to preach to you on the thought, Out of the eater came forth meat. Or I might give a little subtitle. You see books that that do that sometimes. They'll say, this is the title. No, I'm just joking. This is really the title. You know what I'm talking about? They'll say, such and such and such, or such and such and such. Uh, I guess one title ain't good enough for some folks. I guess this preacher's one of them this morning. So I'm going to title it this, Out of the Eater Came Forth Meat, or The Story of the Cross. I think when we read the book of Judges and chapter number 14 in particular, I think we find laid out before us not merely the story of a judge of Israel, not merely the story of his taking a Philistine bride and wife, not merely the story of him expounding a riddle to the Philistines, but I think when we look carefully here, we find a picture, a vivid illustration of the truth of redemption, the story of the cross, what God has done in humanity, and what Christ is doing in this day that we live in. You know, as is always the case when you study the Word of God, sometimes it is important, especially when you preach typology, pictures and foreshadows in the Bible, to frame it in a certain way. So I'm going to do something for you this morning. I'm going to give you seven ways that Samson reminds me of Jesus. Now, can I go ahead and tell you this? Uh, that Jesus shows up in some strange places in the Bible, doesn't He? Amen. You with me this morning? Come on, be with me this morning. He shows up in some strange places. We don't expect to see him on Mount Moriah there when Abraham's offering Isaac, but there he is. Uh, We don't expect him to see him uh, over the hillside by Jericho when Joshua uh, has gathered the armies of the Lord's host, but there he is. We don't expect him to see uh, him walking through the fiery furnace. Thank God, even though we don't expect to see him walking through the fiery furnace, there he is walking through the fiery furnace. He shows up in some strange places in the Bible, but I don't know that there is any place that is stranger for the Lord Jesus to appear than in the life of Samson. I think when we look at Samson, we see in him a broken individual. But can I say this to you this morning? Uh, Samson was broken. I'm not trying to excuse any of his own personal decisions. But all of his brokenness came from pursuing after women. Now you say, well, preacher, that's not, that, that's not very encouraging. How's that like Jesus? Well, all of his brokenness has come from pursuing after his bride. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, hey, listen, he didn't have to uh, leave the gates of glory, the ivory palaces. He didn't have to come to this earth and be spit upon and be uh, rebuked and, and be uh, beaten and be nailed to a cross. But he was willing to do that so that he could win a bride unto himself. So I think in some ways it's unusual. We don't imagine Samson being a picture of Jesus, but I think if we think about it carefully, it probably won't surprise us that much. I think Samson reminds us of Jesus in in these seven ways. Number one, he had a significant name. Uh, The word Samson, the name Samson literally means light. Well, now, doesn't that make us think of Jesus? Uh, Christ said that he was the light of the world. And certainly Samson in his day, for all of the flaws we may impute unto him, he was a light in Israel. He was a savior in Israel. He was a redeemer. 
Redeemer in Israel. Truly, Samson being named the light reminds us of Jesus. Not only that, I think his spectacular announcement reminds me of Jesus. You know, Samson was only uh, one of a handful of people in the Bible whose birth was announced by angels before he ever came. Uh, The Bible says that the angel of the Lord appeared uh, unto Samson's mother and revealed to her that a child would be born, not just any child, but a special child. Can I remind you that uh, one night in Bethlehem, there was a special child born, and when he was, the angels were on hand to announce his birth. Can I remind you that uh, uh, just uh, about nine months before that, an angel named Gabriel showed up and made known to a young virgin named Mary that uh, she would bear the child, the Son of God. So his spectacular announcement, speaking of his birth, I think his supernatural birth. Reminds me of Jesus. The Bible tells us in chapter... And by the way, you can find most of this in chapter 13. Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, Samson's mother was barren. It was a miraculous thing that she was able to give birth to a child. She gave supernatural birth. Uh, the Bible says that her womb had been closed, that she was barren. It was impossible uh, for her to bear children, but God opened her womb in a miraculous way. Can I remind you, the Lord Jesus was also born in a miraculous way. Uh, while uh, Samson's mother was not a virgin, uh, the Bible tells us that at the time that the Lord Jesus was conceived of the Holy Ghost, that uh, his mother Mary was a virgin, and both their births were supernatural in nature. Not only that, I think his symbolic dwelling place. In fact, I'll read one verse out of uh, chapter number 13. I wasn't going to do it, but now I'm going to do it. The Bible says in verse 25 of chapter number 13, well, let's look at verse 24. It says, The woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew and the Lord blessed him. It sounds a lot like what the Bible says about Jesus over in Luke chapter number 3. But the Bible says here in verse 25, And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Now, how many of you know that names have significance in your Bible? Uh, Names often paint a portrait before us. And it's interesting because the name Zora means sting, and it reminds us of death. It reminds us of the pain pain and sting of death that humanity feels. And the name Eshtaol means demands or requirements. We might use this phrase. It means laws, rules and laws. So if I'm reading this right, that tells me Samson, the Bible says he began to move in the camp of Dan. Now, you know what a camp is. A camp is a place where everybody's dwelling in tents. So Samson spent his life uh, dwelling in a tent between death and the law. Doesn't that remind you of Jesus? The Bible tells us that uh, the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. That word literally means it was tabernacled. He took up a, a residence in human flesh. He sojourned amongst mankind and he lived his life living a perfect life towards the law, but headed towards the death of the cross of Calvary. He literally lived. He literally stood in between mankind and the law and the death that the law calls for. I think his symbolic dwelling place reminds me of Jesus. Not only that, his sanctified life. Now, some of you are going to say, well, preacher, uh, Samson was not a sanctified man. And I will admit to you, uh, there are moral failures in his life. But can I remind you, he was part of a very special class of people. Uh, In fact, we're really only told of about three or four people in the Bible uh, that were like Samson. They were a Nazarite for their whole life. Typically, a Nazarite was someone that was committed by vows to certain things to God. They couldn't touch anything dead. uh, They couldn't drink wine. And that doesn't mean 
mean strong drink. It means they couldn't even drink grape juice. Uh, they could not let a razor cut the hair on their head. And, uh, people have said, well, preacher, why is that? Because your head has to do with authority. And the idea was nobody should touch their hair except God would touch their hair. The idea was that their authority was only unto God. Now, most of the time in the Bible, people took a Nazarite vow for a short while. They performed it. Then they did the sacrifices associated with it, and then they were done with it. But the Bible tells us there was about three men in the Bible that were Nazarites for their whole life. Samuel was a Nazarite for his whole life. John the Baptist was a Nazarite for his whole life. And wouldn't you know that Samson was a Nazarite for his whole life. In other words, he lived a separated, sanctified life. He was to live differently than the men that were around him. Now, boy, that reminds me of Jesus. The Bible says that he was wholly separate from sinners. Uh, it's true that he walked amongst men, but he did not walk as men. It's true that he lived in this world, but he did not live of this world. Uh, the men that saw him and observed the way that he lived and the things that he taught and the things that he did, they said, no man ever spake this way. No man ever did the things that he did. He was different. Samson was as well. And that reminds me of Jesus. Not only that, Samson reminds me of Jesus because of his sacrificial death. He died to slay the enemy. You remember over there, uh, just a chapter or two over, I believe in chapter number 16 of, uh, of the book of Judges, that Samson dies when he pulls the Philistine temple in onto himself and he kills himself so that he can kill the enemy. Now that reminds me of Jesus. Don't it remind you of Jesus? Uh, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. Uh, we'll preach about it here in a moment, but he, through his death, destroyed death. He pulled the temple in on himself so that he might slay the enemy. And then it reminds me of the Lord Jesus because of his successful life. You know, the Bible says in that chapter that Samson killed more in his death than he ever did in his life. Now, boy, that sounds like Jesus, only you've got to flip it around. You've got to look through the other end of the telescope. He saved more lives in his death than he saved in his life. He accomplished more through his death than he accomplished through his life. So I think when we start looking at, at Samson, I don't think it's that unusual to think that Samson kind of reminds us of Jesus. And when you look through the life of Samson, you'll find there were basically three women that Samson was involved with throughout his life. And all of those have significance. Uh, over in chapter number 16, there is a prostitute uh, that he goes down to and the men gather around him, lay weight around him, and he uh, gets up and he takes the bars off of the city, the, the doors off of the uh, city walls, and walks off with them. And that, in some ways, is a picture of Jesus' relationship with Israel. Israel, the ever-unfaithful, idolatrous, uh, prostitute, religiously speaking, in its relationship with God. And then if you go over in, in the rest to chapter 16, you'll find a woman you're familiar with her. Her name is Delilah. Uh, Delilah, in many ways, is a picture of the church. Uh, she is, uh, too, someone that is not faithful. She, too, is someone that is not true. She, too, is someone that is not loyal to Samson. But Samson gives his life so that he can have her. That's a reminder of how the Lord Jesus was with the church. We don't deserve His love. We haven't earned His love. Uh, but still, He gave His life so that the church could be. He loved the church and gave himself for it. But here in chapter number 14, we're told about a woman that is merely called the woman. And who does she represent? Well, I want to preach to you on this, really this whole chapter, so buckle in. But I want to preach to you on four thoughts this morning. My laughers are not here. Whoever has my sense of humor is out in the car right now. There we go. Four thoughts this morning. I'll go ahead and tell them to you. I want to take a moment and preach on Samson's resolution, his decision. What did he make up his mind to do? And then I want to preach to you on Samson's rending. When he's going to do what he wants to do, he's met by a foe. He's met by opposition, and he deals with that opposition. And then I want to preach to you on Samson's return, because he returns back. Aren't you glad the Lord Jesus is coming back? Amen. There's going to be some things going to happen when he comes back. Amen. And uh, then if the Lord will help us, we'll take a moment and look at Samson's riddle. 
Bible and consider what that means in light of our lives. Well, first notice with me verse number 1. The Bible says, And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me to wife. This was Samson's resolution. He made his mind up. He saw this woman. He desired to have this woman to be his wife. Uh, we, I, I'm sure he thought that she was pretty, although there's no reason to believe anything lewd in what's being said in this uh, passage. But merely, and by the way, something would suggest against it, which is he turns around and goes back home. He does not dwell there in Timnath. Uh, and he has to return later to marry her. Uh, but he sees this woman. He says, that's who I want. I'm interested in her. I love her. This grieves Samson's parents because they don't understand why in all the land of Israel he has to decide uh, to take a wife of the Philistines. Can I just make a point right here? If you were to look at a map, you know what you'd find? You'd find that uh, the camp of Dan between Eshdaol and Zorah is right on the border. Listen, I said it's right on the border of the land of the Philistines. In fact, Timnath was a border town between the Philistines and the Israelites. Can I just say this? This is so far from my message, I ain't even joking. But I want to say it anyway. You live near the border, don't be surprised. You live near the border, don't be surprised. I'm talking about living near the border of sin, the border of the world, the border of ungodly. You live right on the edge. Don't be surprised when your children look over that property line and say, boy, look at her, or look at him, or look at that, or look at this. So Samson, he is interested in this girl, and he tells his parents, he says, I have a desire uh, to go and to take this woman to wife. Notice with me, take note of the damsel pursued in this verse. There's not a lot we're told about her. All we know, we're never told her name. All we're told is she's called the woman. And I think that anonymity is important. The Bible tells us this detail about her life. We know that she had parents. Uh, We know that evidently she was in a somewhat comfortable situation. She wasn't a beggar. She wasn't destitute. Uh, She wasn't homeless. Uh, All we really know, though, about her is that she was a Philistine. Now, something you'll find if you study in your Bibles, Philistines are always a picture of the world. You know that the word Philistine, it literally means to roll in the dust. Now, I don't know about you, but that sort of reminds me of something that the Lord said back in Genesis chapter number 3 when He was cursing a man and cursing woman. And then He looked at the serpent and He said, all the days of your life you're going to crawl on your belly in the dust of the earth. And now here are these Philistines who when people look at them, they think of them as someone that rolls or crawls or wallows in the dust. I don't think that's by accident. When you look at their life, when you look at their behavior, they were ever-present idolatrous opponent to the children of Israel. You know what they're a picture of? They're a picture of the world under Satan's influence. That's what the world looks like. You know the world does exactly what the world's father tells it to do? You know, the world does exactly, the world becomes, this is a biblical principle that you become what you worship, you are what you worship, you will emulate what you worship. This world worships the God of this world, and so this world looks like the God of this world. This woman was of this people. Now, what does it tell us that Samson was interested in her? It tells me this, and I, I'm just going to say it this way. It reminds me of how Jesus looked at a broken, sin-cursed, sin-stained world and said, I want to rescue that world from the grip and power of the devil. It reminds me of the interest that God took. Hey, God didn't have to do that, but the Bible tells us... uh, The Bible did not say that God was so obligated to the world. The the Bible did not necessarily even just say that that God was was so... uh, uh, was so. What's the word I'm looking for? It'll come out here in a second. Sometimes I'll start something. We just got to trust the Holy Ghost to finish it. Amen? 
that he was so interested in what he could derive for his own benefit concerning the world. The Bible says he loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Say, what are you saying, preacher? I'm saying this, that God loves the world. And he had a plan of redemption for the world. And the same way that Samson had a desire to rescue this woman, to redeem this woman from her godless circumstances, it reminds me of how Jesus desired to rescue and redeem all that would come unto him from the godlessness of the world that we live in. So take note of the damsel that's pursued. And then notice number two, take note of the displeased parents. Look what it says in verse number three. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all, notice this phrase, my people, that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? Now, what was he really saying? When he says my people, who does he mean? He means the Jewish people. I think in many ways the parents here remind me of the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation in observing the Lord Jesus and His mandate and His mission and His ministry in coming into this world to be made a sacrifice for us. The Jewish nation did not understand it. They did not comprehend it. The Bible says that light uh, came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That light came into the world, but the darkness comprehended it not. And I don't think it could be said more clearly than the way that John says it when he says He came unto His own. Who are His own? His own was the Jewish nation. When their Messiah arrived on the scene, they didn't own Him as their Messiah. They didn't see Him as their Messiah. They didn't recognize Him as their Messiah. And that, of course, and we'll say a word in a moment, was according to the divine providence of God uh, because the casting off of them for the temporary, for the season, for this age, was for the redemption of the world. They didn't understand why He was there. Same way that Samson's parents looked and said, Boy, I just don't understand. All these pretty girls here in Israel, and you've got to go find a Philistine. In the same way, I think that the Jewish nation looked and said, why is it all these Gentiles are coming to him? Why is it that he is castigating our Jewish traditions? Why is it that he is defying the wishes and orders of the Sanhedrin? Can I remind you, he never broke an Old Testament law. But he sure enough upset the Jewish tradition. Let me say it again. He never broke an Old Testament law. Jesus never broke an Old Testament law. But he sure enough upset the Jewish tradition that had become preeminent above the law in the days that he walked this earth. And so the Jewish nation, they did not understand. The Bible says that there'd be no man to declare his generation, Isaiah chapter 53, that he'd grow up before him as a root out of a dry ground. They'd see no form nor comeliness concerning him. They'd look on him and wouldn't understand what he was there doing, wouldn't understand the things that he taught, wouldn't understand the things that he said. And you know, the closer he got to the cross, the less they understood it. You remember, the Bible says in the book of John chapter number 6 that when he began to talk about people eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that many were offended and turned away and walked away from him and didn't walk with him anymore. The closer he got to the cross, the more he started talking about the cross. Hey, listen, even when he brought up the cross to Simon Peter, Simon Peter grabbed him and rebuked him and said, Be it far from me, O O Lord. And the Lord looked at him and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You say, What are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, that as long as Jesus was talking about restoring a kingdom, the land of Israel was with him. But the moment he started talking about heading to a cross, they began to not understand and they began to be offended in him. I'm saying this this morning that the uh, displeased parents remind me of Israel because they just didn't understand what he was doing. They couldn't wrap their mind around what the plan was in this situation. Then notice verse number 4. It tells us something very important. Verse number 4 says this, But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord, that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Now, I'm going to tell you something this morning. You may agree, you may disagree with what I'm about to say. I, I don't think capitalization and pronouns in the Bible is necessarily absolute. 
I think when it's present and when it's there, we ought to pay attention to it. You know why? Because translators knew more than, than we do about the language. The translators un- understood more than you or I do about what they were translating. And they were brilliant men that understood when they translated something and capitalized something, uh, that was their endorsement of a particular perspective. But can I say this? I think there's times that something's not capitalized. That don't mean it isn't talking about God. And I think when you look in this particular passage, I don't think it was Samson that sought an occasion against the Philistines. You can disagree with me. Some of y'all looking at me like a calf staring at a new gate. You all right? I said, you all right? I said, you can disagree with me if you want. That's free. Amen? I found that agreeing with me usually costs you something, but you can disagree with me. Nobody will be upset at you. I'm just saying this this morning. I think the he in verse number four is talking about the Lord. You can disagree with that if you want. But I don't think it's saying Samson sought an occasion against the Philistines. I think Samson, he sought a wife of the Philistines. But I think it says that it was of the Lord, for the Lord sought an occasion against the Philistines. Now you say, what does that mean, preacher? It tells me this, God had a plan in it. Take note of the divine providence that's found here. It tells me that God had a plan. God had something that He was doing in the midst of this situation. You know, it's interesting. The name Timnath, you know what it means? It means a predetermined place. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Calvary. You know that Calvary always had a significance all throughout the Old Testament. That hill, that place of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and Calvary, which was just adjacent to it, always had significance all through the Old Testament. It was the place where David uh, bought the threshing floor of Orna. It was the place where the temple was built. It was the place where uh, Abraham on Mount Moriah sacrificed Isaac. It was always a place of great significance in the Old Testament. And it reminds me sort of the, what it says here. He went to an appointed place to get that bride. Sort of reminds me of the Lord Jesus, who the Bible says was slain before the foundation of the world. You know what that tells me? That tells me that that hill called Mount Calvary that we sang about a little bit this morning, that hill was picked out long before any of these hills were made. In the mind and heart of God, it was appointed that the Lord Jesus would go to the cross of Calvary. And when He went to Calvary, it was not a surprise to God. He was going to an appointed place that day. It reminds me of the providence of God here in this passage. Uh, that Listen, I, I'm not sure if Samson quite understood. I know his parents did not understand, but I know that God knew what he was going to do that day. I know that God knew what he was going to bring about that day whenever Samson went down to Timnath to gain a bride. So I think Samson's resolution is interesting. But notice what verse number 5 says. Uh, things did not go as Samson thought that they would. And that's not to suggest the Lord Jesus was taken by surprise, but merely in the narrative of Samson's life, he did not expect this. But verse number 5 says, Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath. That, by the way, I ain't even... There's so much in here, we ain't never going to get it preached. Uh, the vineyards is significant. You know, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 5 calls Israel the Lord's vineyard. You know that there were parables that the Lord Jesus taught in the New Testament about a vineyard that was led out to people and uh, they hated the uh, vineyard owner and they rebelled against him and they murdered the vineyard owner's son. The vineyard in the Bible is very significant. It denotes the idea of God planting something, God owning something, God establishing something. It's interesting that he went down to the vineyards there in Timnath. The Bible says as he was going there, verse 5, that behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid. And he had nothing in his hand, but he told not his father or his mother what he had done. I want you to think with me for a moment about Samson's rending. 
And notice first off with me the voracious consumer that steps out from the path and stands in front of Samson and roars against him. Now, I'll tell you what my first inclination was, all right? My first inclination, you think lion in the Bible, you think the devil. But I don't know necessarily that this lion uh, represents the, the devil. And there's a few reasons for that. It has to do with uh, what I think that the, the bees represent and the honey represents and the carcass represents. Can I just say this, that the devil is very much alive today and well today and kicking today and fighting today and battling and warring today. But there is an enemy of God. There is an enemy of man. There was an enemy of Christ uh, that was uh, made mute, that was made powerless, that was made impotent through the cross of Calvary. And you know who that was? It wasn't necessarily the devil, although he was most assuredly defeated in a broad sense that day. But you know what was negated? You know whose crown was stolen? You know whose scepter was broken? It was that enemy that we call death. And you don't have to agree with what I'm saying, but I'll just tell you, I think the line represents death. And there's a few reasons for that. I, we titled it The Voracious Consumer, and that's what death is, isn't it? Uh, death is a, is a ever-consuming, ever-burning, ever-taking enemy. And it reminds me of a lion for a few reasons. One, uh, just like a lion, death cannot be avoided. If a lion sets out to track down prey, he can run for miles and miles and miles. He can stalk. He is relentless. And sooner you may avoid an antelope or a wilderness. It may avoid it for a while, but sooner or later, the lion will get its prey. You know, that reminds me of death. We can put death off. We can try to avoid death. We can try to delay death. But sooner or later, death comes for every single one of us. You know what the psalmist said in Psalms 89, 48? He said, What man is he that liveth and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Now, the psalmist was just observing something that we can all look at. Uh, every one of us can go around and we can look at funeral homes. We can look at cemeteries. We can look at grave plots and recognize that the funeral home business, it ain't going out of business. It ain't hurting. It ain't suffering. Because Sooner or later, we will have to face death. I think just like a lion, death reminds me of a lion because it cannot be assailed. A lion is the lord of the jungle. He's the king of predators. And in his environment, he is the top of the food chain. There's nothing hunts him. He hunts everything else. You know why? Because nothing can beat him. You know death cannot be defeated. It cannot be beaten. It cannot be overcome, at least not through human instrumentality, not through human means. It was said of John Rockefeller that a, a year before his death uh, that he asked anybody around, he said he would give up to the half of his fortune to anyone that could add an extra year onto his life. And you know that no one took that offer because no one had that power. No one had that capability. I praise the Lord for the doctors that He uses to keep us healthy. Uh, but they, if they're honest, will be the first to tell you that at the end of the day, uh, they are practicing medicine. It is the art of medicine that at the end of the day, they cannot save death forever. It cannot be defeated. And then it cannot be appeased. A lion cannot be bribed. It wants one thing and one thing only. And despite how voraciously it may eat, it will always have another appetite coming around the corner. It will always want to eat more. Uh, with the hundreds of pounds that it takes of food every single day uh, to keep these creatures alive is a reminder of their voracious, insatiable appetite. You know, that reminds me of death. Death is never satisfied. It's always looking for its next victim. Uh, Psalm, uh, the Solomon in the book of Proverbs described this uh, when he was describing four things that say that never say it is not enough. He said there are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things say it is not enough. And the first thing he said was the grave. The grave. The grave is ever expanding. It is never satisfied. That's the foe that Samson met that day when he met the lion. And can I remind you, that's the foe that Jesus met when he died on the cross of Calvary. 
we see the voracious consumer, but I'd like for you to notice the vicious contest. What happened? That lion stepped out and roared at Samson. Now, why does a lion roar? There's passages in the Old Testament that talk about this, that describe it as it relates to the judgment of God. Uh, But a lion does not roar when it's stalking. A lion roars when it's attacking. A lion roars when it believes it has its prey in its grasp, that it cannot escape, that it is within the jurisdiction and authority of its power and of its strength. And you know that's what death did. All of hell cackled. All of death vaunted itself against the Savior. And Satan believed he had finally killed God that day on Calvary. Uh, you know why that is? Because Jesus, and this is what I like. You know, the Bible, we, we see, I'm just going to preach it. I'm just going to leave it. And I'm going to preach it. There was a roaring that took place, but then there was a rending that took place. The Bible, the, the lion thought it had a hold of Samson. But it didn't know who it had just grabbed hold of. If it had just grabbed a hold of any old man, the lion would have been all right. But it did not grab. Notice how it was. The Bible says he rent it. You know what that is? Denoting his supernatural strength. Uh, that which was different about Samson, that which was not seen uh, externally about Samson, but that which was sensed if one was to know him, if one was to interact with him, if one was to feel his presence, if one was to fight in contest against him. Uh, you see, death looked at Jesus and thought, he's just like anybody else, and, and death grabbed hold of But he didn't know who he grabbed hold of. That's why the book of Acts tells us uh, that he rose from the dead, because he could not be holden of death. The lion thought he had a hold of Samson. I don't know at what point, but some point throughout that exchange, that kitty cat must have looked scared when it realized that it did not have hold of Samson, but in fact Samson had hold of it. And can you imagine the look on death's face when it realized it did not have Jesus, Jesus had it. I'm saying this morning, thank the Lord for the way that He rent death, He separated death, He diffused death. He robbed death of its power and of its ability. Now, death is still present, but death does not have the mastery anymore. Death is nothing but a carcass to grow honey in. I I think the the, uh, voracious consumer is interesting. I I think in this passage, the, the vicious contest is interesting. But then I want you to think about the victorious conquest. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Bible says in verse number 6 that, that Samson, when he grabbed it, when he rent this thing in two, he, he did not do so just through his own physical brute strength, but the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It was spiritual in its dimension, this victory was. Uh, in other words, it was not a tangible or physical... Now, that's not to say it didn't have tangible or physical consequences, but the strength, the power, the force of it did not come from this dimension. It came from another dimension. You know, that reminds me of the Lord Jesus. Uh, you know, when death finally did get a hold of Jesus, Jesus, even in that moment, it did not get a hold of him against his will. In John chapter number 10, Jesus said, no man can take my life from me. He said, I lay it down that I might take it up again. And the Bible, when it says that Jesus bowed his head, it doesn't say Jesus dropped his head. It said Jesus bowed his head. And and the Bible doesn't say the ghost was taken from him. The Bible says he gave up the ghost. And the Bible does not say that the Father took his spirit, but rather that Jesus said, Father, into thy hands do I commend my spirit. What does all that mean, preacher? It means this, that that victory, even as even as the body of the Lord Jesus ceased, even as His heart ceased to beat and His lungs ceased to breathe, the victory in that, the power in that, the influence that was always spiritual in its dimension. Never for one moment was Jesus without the mastery of His person. He was always in control. And it was a spiritual victory. Not only that, notice it was specific in its disclosure. i got to be careful. I don't want to get bogged down here. But the Bible says in verse number 6, He told not His father or His mother what He had done. 
Now, if his father and mother are reminding us of the Jewish nation, I, I think that's fair. I think that's fit. It's not to say you couldn't maybe make some other applications, but I think at the very least we'd have to acknowledge that is a possibility. You know, it's a reminder to, to me of this, that the Jewish nation as a whole, that's not to say every Jew walking the earth. In fact, the gospel went to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. But the Jewish nation to this day still lives under blindness concerning the ramifications of the gospel. They still don't know that the lion's been ripped. They still don't know the enemy has been defeated. They still don't know the victory is one. And then notice it was successful in its design. The Bible says in verse number 7, he went down and talked with the woman and she pleased Samson well. And you say, well, that, so what, preacher? That's just, that's just a story going on. No, think about it this way with me for a moment. Here goes Samson down the road and, and the Lord of beasts, the king of the jungle, the, the predator of predators stands out in front of him and roars against him. He just reaches down and <laughs> splits it in two and just keeps walking. He's never deferred from his purpose. He, he conquered the enemy and he achieved what he accomplished. Can I tell you this? Calvary was not a failure. Calvary was not a failure. And the church is not an audible. It was always the plan of God and he is successful in what he has done. He is victorious. So I see Samson's rending. I think that's interesting. But look at verse number 8. I would say this. Between verse 7 and verse number 8, we skip about 2,000 years of human history. Not in Samson's life, but in your life and mine. Because notice the next thing that happens. So Samson goes down. He sees this woman in Timnath. She pleases him well. You know what he does? He pledges his hand to her and her hand to his. They are now betrothed. That's serious stuff in, in, in ancient Israel. They're, they are as good as married. But Samson has to go home. He has to prepare his house. I said he has to go home. He has to prepare a place for her. I said he has to go home and prepare a place for her, but don't worry because he'll come back and receive her unto himself. That if he goes away and prepares a place for her, he will come again and receive her unto himself. So he has betrothed himself to her and now he goes back to his land. But look what verse 8 says. The Bible says, and after time he returned. <laughs> Thank God, after a time, the Bible says He returned, underscore it, circle it, bold it, after a time. You say, how much time, preacher? I don't know how much time, but I promise you that after a time, He did return to take her. Say, I don't get what you're going on about. I'm saying He's coming back. I'm saying He's coming back. He's going to return. We are pledged to Him. He is pledged to us. But the marriage supper's still coming. And He's going to come back to receive us unto himself. Notice his design upon his return. Well, there's two things. One, he wanted to take her unto himself. He wanted to go back for his bride. But I would say this, number two, he wanted to vaunt himself against his foe. The Bible says that he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Now, why would he do that, Brother Ken? Why would he do that? Except he just wanted to walk by that old stinking rotten carcass and kick it and say, you old lion... Shows you for coming up against me. Shows you for fighting against me. You stand as a testimony to all that pass by what the strength of Samson can do. You stand as proof that my foes fall before me. You stand as proof that I am victorious. You say, preacher, that's good and everything. What does that have to do with Jesus? Can I read a passage to you that may just explain it better than I could? In 1 Corinthians, Paul said this. Verse number 51 of the 15th chapter. He said, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning we're not all going to die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, he said, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. I like this next word, incorruptible. 
and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, meaning that which death has jurisdiction over, that which death has mastery over, that which decay has influence over, this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on corruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, when's all that going to happen, preacher? Well, if I go backwards, my Bible says that it's when the trump of God sounds. At the last trump, the book of First Thessalonians chapter Four says that's when Jesus is coming back. In other words, one of the things he's doing when he returns is he's returning to vaunt himself over his defeated foe over death. How's he going to do that? By giving us new bodies. By raising from the grave, raising from the purview, raising from the authority and jurisdiction, raising from the region of death's grip and death's hold, raising those bodies and giving them new bodies, perfect bodies. You say, what's he doing? He's just vaunting himself over death. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, this is the first resurrection. There's another resurrection that's after that. But that first resurrection, what is he doing? He's he's establishing his prowess and dominance over death. The Bible says the last enemy that shall be defeated is death, but it shall be defeated. It shall be brought under. And there at the return, he's just he's just strutting over the carcass and reminding himself and reminding those around that he is the victor. So I see his design upon his return. Then notice with me his discovery upon his return. Verse number 8 says this, After a time, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And something unusual had happened. The Bible says, And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. You say, Preacher, what a strange thing. Well, I think it's strange too. In fact, I'd say this, it's no coincidence. I think it's there on purpose. You say, Now, Preacher, what could that remind us of? Well, you might see it differently than me, but I'll tell you what it reminds me of. Now, here's the line death, and death has, has roared against the Lord Jesus Christ, and He took death and rended death and rended the veil and destroyed the foe and destroyed the enemy. The carcass is still there, but it doesn't have the power and strength that it once did. And there in the carcass of that death, there in the vestiges of that victory, here's this little group of congregated, small, insignificant individuals whose strength is only found in the fact that they've joined together banded together. And listen, they're not there to dominate. They're just there to work. And there they work inside that hive. There they work producing something that's sweet, the very nectar of life. That which, you know, one one person said this, that honey is the only substance known to man that has all of the elements that are necessary, Brother Ken, to sustain life. In fact, not only that, it's got a particular enzyme that's associated with intelligence and smartness. You wouldn't know it by some of us, amen? But but, but uh, you say, now what is all that? Well, it sort of reminds me of this. Now let's stop and think about a little congregation of small, insignificant people, creatures, whatever you want to say, that have banded together. And they've banded together not to conquer the world, but to do a work. They've banded together to try to create this sweet nectar of life that has the ability to give life, to sustain life, to heal, to, to nurture and nourish and protect. And that little group of bees works together to produce this honey. And then here comes Samson, who reminds us of Jesus. And he comes by this carcass and looks down. And there they are, all busy bees working and laboring away. And he just reaches down and grabs a big old thing of that honey. And he eats it. And the Bible says he's pleased with it. He's pleased with how they've spent their time. He's pleased with the work that they're doing. He's pleased with the life that they are producing. You know, it kind of reminds me of the church. kind of reminds me of the church. 
little group of individuals built in the carcass of death, built in the vestiges of that victory, built in the shadow of, of Jesus' crown that have banded together. And we're not banded together to try to conquer the world. We're not marching with sword and shield to try to overthrow our foes. No, listen, all we're doing here, we banded together doing this work, Brother Fred, and just trying to build that honey. You say, what's that honey a picture of? Well, I think it's a picture of life. Not just any life, but spiritual life, resurrection life, the life that we have in Jesus Christ, the life that if we have that, we have all we need. Sort of reminds me of the church. So I, I think his discovery is interesting upon his return. And then notice what it says in verse 9. So here he comes back. And I'm thankful he's coming back. And when he comes back, here he finds this group, this body of people, this body of bees working together, producing this honey. The Bible says in verse 9, And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother, and he gave them and they did eat. But he told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass. Of the line. You know, it's almost like this. It's almost like he turns around and gives his mother and father one more opportunity to share in his victory, Brother Charlie. One more opportunity to taste of that honey. But they're not going to partake in it by rending the lion with him. No, they're going to partake in it the same way that everyone else that walked by would partake in it. They'd have to reach down and grab a big old scoop of that honey and eat it and have a part. You know, it kind of reminds me of that Jewish remnant in the tribulation period. After Jesus comes back, the Bible says there's going to be 144,000 that go out preaching the gospel, that go out and you say, well, preacher, are folks going to be saved in the tribulation period? You or I won't be if we ain't saved uh, whenever it starts. But those that were not aware of the gospel, those that uh, were not made known to the truth of the gospel, those that had never walked by the carcass of that lion, those that had never seen that honey won't uh, be held accountable. They'll be able to reach down and take a scoop of it. It reminds me of the great work that God's going to do in the Jewish nation at the beginning of the tribulation period. He shares that honey with them as a people. Because again, I'd remind his mother and father, not all Jews, but the Jewish nation in particular. But you know, they still don't enter into a full comprehension of it. I said they still don't enter into a full comprehension of it. You say, when did they find out? I don't know when they found out, but I'll tell you when the Jews are going to enter into a full comprehension. The, the, the peop- there will be some that will be saved, but the nation itself will not be saved until the end of the tribulation period, when they look on Him whom they've pierced. You see, I think it's interesting His dispensing upon His return. And then finally, and I'm just going to, I'm going to mention this, all right? So don't even get scared, all right? I'm just going to mention it. I'm not even going to preach it. But can I say something about Samson's riddle? We've already expounded it, we know, and they go on and they, they describe what it is, what's stronger than a lion, what's sweeter than honey. But you know the riddle there, it kind of reminds me of the gospel. So why do you believe that, preacher? Well, for, for a couple reasons. One, it has to do with paradoxes. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I, I, that's the whole riddle. Out of the, out of the eater, that which consumes, that which devours, that which destroys, came forth meat, that which provides life that which sustains, that which nourishes. And then it says, out out of the strong came forth that which is sweet. The idea being that which is vicious, that which is tough, that which is uh, that which is uh, unmovable and implacable. Out of that came a sweetness. And that kind of reminds me of the gospel. You know, you think about what the gospel is. The, the gospel is the truth of this. It is not that man can better himself by working and laboring and 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 and, uh, and trying to renovate himself and trying to recommit himself. It, it's not the idea that if he just works harder. That's what we think. We think if I just work harder, things will go better. If I just do more, things will go better. If I'm just 
just a better person, I'll get into heaven. But think about this. You've heard me say it before. But think about this paradox. There are only bad people in heaven. There are only good people in hell. Only people willing to acknowledge that they are unworthy of God's salvation can receive salvation. And those that are unwilling to acknowledge their lost condition cannot be helped until they're willing to admit that they need the Savior. The gospel is a thing of paradoxes and that sort of reminds me of, of the of, of the gospel and, and this riddle. But also it kind of reminds me because of, of the of the perspective. So what do you mean, preacher? Can I be honest? Can I take up for these Philistines for just like a, a, a measly little second? I don't think I would have got that riddle. Would you? I'm not one for riddles anyway. I mean I don't understand polar bears and his, and the doctor's his mother and all this nonsense. I don't that's just voodoo to me. But I mean, of all riddles, how would you get that riddle, Brother Ken? How could you possibly understand that riddle? Well, here's the thing. There's only two ways you could know the answer to that riddle. And Samson, he kind of cues in on this later on. Uh, his wife, she uh, she weeps before him. He had, boy, he had a soft spot for the ladies in his life. Amen. It, it, that comforts me to be reminded that God has a soft spot for His church. Amen. But, but she starts crying and weeping and moaning and you don't love me and you don't care about me and, and we, and we didn't get the, uh, the, the cruise ship room that had the balcony. We got the one on the middle of the cabin. This is a terrible honeymoon and they burnt my steak, all this stuff. And so she said, you know what make me feel better? It'd make me feel better if you just tell me what that riddle is. And later on, Samson, he looks at these men and he says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have known my real. You know what he's saying? He was saying, you went behind my back and you convinced her because that's the only way you could have known it. There's another way a person could have known this. They either had to be told it by somebody else or listen to this, they had to be there to see it for themselves. It's the only way a man would ever answer that riddle. The only way he would ever might know what that riddle was is if he had been there and experienced it firsthand and seen the mighty hands of Samson rend into that line. That's the only way he would know. Or if somebody that had seen it, somebody that had experienced it, somebody that had been a part of it came along and said, Hey, can I tell you what I saw Samson do? Can I tell you what I saw? That kind of reminds me of the gospel. You know why? There's only two ways to really experience it. There were those that saw what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. Those that eyewitnesses, Paul says in uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, were eyewitnesses of what he had seen. And you know, every one of us since then that's had, that's known the answer to the riddle, we've known because somebody told somebody that told somebody that told somebody that told somebody that told somebody till you and I sit here in an independent Baptist church in East Tennessee because we know the answer to the riddle. Kind of reminds me of the gospel. But that means this, that there's, there's two types of people as it relates to this riddle. Well, what's the prize for those with sincere knowledge? He said, I'll give you 30 sheets and 30 garments. You men said, why would I need 30 garments? You women said, just 30? How would I ever live? But you see, the Bible says there were 30 men. You know what that means? Every one of them had to have a new coat to put on. Every one of them had to have a new set of, set of clothes. Every one of them had to get rid of the coat they came in and get the coat that was produced by the riddle. It reminds me of the gospel because that's what God does for you and me. He takes off that old coat of our self-righteousness, of our sinfulness, of our self-dependence, and He puts on the new coat of the new man, of the righteousness of Christ. But now what about those? There were some of them. Listen now, that they didn't, they weren't there and they didn't see it themselves. And, they didn't remember. By the way, the, the woman here, the wife, she wasn't there either. 
She, I said, she wasn't there either. You know what happened? She relates the answer without knowing the truth. Let me say that again. Can I say it again? Let me just one more time. Let me say it. She knows the answer, but she doesn't know the truth. She wasn't there to experience it. She never asked Samson what it meant. She just asked what the answer was. In other words, she then turns around and tells these men, says this is the answer, and they go and they give. But Samson knows. He knows that they don't have a sincere knowledge. They don't know in their hearts what that means. Listen now. They just know the answer with their head. They knew what to say. All they had. You know what we might say? You know what we might call, we might call that having a head knowledge of the gospel, but not having a heart knowledge, knowing the answer, but not knowing the truth. You know, there are a lot of folks walking around today, they know the answer. You can go up to their door, knock on their door. If you died today, where would you go? Heaven. What, are you going to say Milwaukee? Where else are you going to? I mean, that's the obvious answer, Brother Ken. You grew up down here. You went to BBS. You know the answer. But do you know the truth? Do you know the truth? You go to people and you say, how do you know that, that if you died that you'd, you'd go to heaven? And they, and they, they will probably walk through a, a prayer. They probably have been down. They probably filled out a little green card. They, they know the answer to give you. Well, I prayed and asked Jesus to save me. I'm saying this. At the end of the day, can I ask you a question? Do you have heart knowledge or do you have head knowledge? Do you know, do you know the truth or do you just know the answer? There's a lot of folks, all they know is that you say, what's the difference? The difference is in experiencing that truth, surrendering yourself to it, submitting yourself unto it, saying, not just Jesus died for sinners, He died for me. Uh, not just some folks need to be saved, I need to be saved. <laughs> uh, not just, Lord, you need to forgive some folks, but Lord, would you forgive me of my sins and redeem me and save me and change my life? I'm saying there's a difference between that head knowledge and that heart knowledge. What happened to those that just had the head knowledge? The Bible says He took them down to Ashkelon. You know the word Ashkelon, it means a weighing place. So what does that mean? Well, it means they were taken down and weighed in the balances. We might use this word, a judgment took place. You know, the book of Revelation talks about another judgment that's going to take place. Uh, John says that he saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it. And he goes on to describe how the dead, both small and great, were called up to that throne and were called into account for what they had done with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And says that those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire. In other words, those with just a head knowledge, but with no heart knowledge. You know, much relies on what we do with this riddle. And it's not a riddle because the answer is not known. It's a riddle because we couldn't know it on our own. It has to be revealed to us. It has to be shown to us by divine. Now you say, well, preacher, I'm just waiting on God to show it to me. He's done showed it to you. He's done showed it to you. So what are you going to do with it now? What kind of knowledge do you have of it? Let's bow together this morning. I Listen, I don't know what the Lord may have done in your heart. I know a great many people, probably most people, if not everyone in the room today, know the Lord is their Savior. But I would ask you this simple question. There's two ways that if you're a Christian, if you're already a child of God, if you know the Lord, there's two ways in which this ought to uh, impact you. One is this question. Do you look more like the bees or do you look more like the buzzards that would have floated around the top of that carcass? Do you look more like those that are busily working in the strength and power, laboring, uh, joining together with uh, other bees, with God's people, and laboring together to produce a life uh, that matters? Or are you like in buzzards, just circling around up above, spectating and waiting to get yours? I think as children of God, we ought to be like the bees. 
Well, we ought to be laboring together, working together, uh, striving together to create something that is pleasing to Samson when he returns. It's pleasing to our Lord when he returns. And can I ask you this second question? What about that riddle? Have you been shared? The only way folks hear the answer to that riddle is if somebody that was there tells somebody. And if somebody, if that person tells, if that person tells, there's a world lost and undone that needs to hear that truth this morning. What about you? Are you having a part in it? And can I ask a third question? There might be some that say, preacher, if I was to be honest, I've got head knowledge. I know all the answers. I could lead you to a prayer. But if I'm to be honest, I'd have to admit, I, I don't know that I really know the Lord as my Savior. I want to. I know I need to. I want to know God. I want to know I'm going to heaven. But if I'm honest, I, I, I don't know. And I need to get that settled this morning. Would you slip your hand up? I won't embarrass you. I won't call your name. But you'd say, Preacher, that's me. I believe I'm lost. I don't want to be. I, I want the Lord to save me. I want my life to be different. Please pray for me. Would you slip your hand up? I won't come to you. I won't embarrass you. Is there anyone say, Preacher, that's me. I believe I'm lost. Please pray for me. All right, as she begins to play, the altar's open this morning. Has God touched your heart about anything? There are some already down here praying. What about you this morning? Has God dealt with you about some area of your life? Are you laboring for Him? Are, are you living for Him? Is your life producing something meaningful for Him? Something beyond the bank account that we rest in so often? Something beyond the reputation that we relish in? Something that will make a difference inside of eternity? Something, something that Samson be pleased with when he returns? A life that the Master can reach down and, and take up in His hand and examine and taste and partake in and say, this is a life well lived. This is a life lived for my glory. This is a life lived that's meaningful. These are praying we have all the time. We need. If God touched your heart, only you can make the decision to come to Him. No one can make that decision for you. No one can. But it is only your decision to make. No one can stop you. No one will answer for you. You'll answer for you just as I will for me. These are praying we have all the time we need. Won't you come this morning if God touched your heart?